Well, folks, welcome to one more edition of Politics and Right. I'm Egberto Willis, your host. Thank you so kindly for being a part of the show. We are going to have, what are we going to have a great, a great show for you again today. Today, we have some very important topics to talk about. Yes, Bruce Pollard, I bet it's going to be a great show. And it is going to be a great show. And folks, all my, all my white folks, I need you to stick around hard today because I've got some work for you to do, Okay. I have some work for you to do, my brothers and sisters. Everybody, actually. But this one is kind of a, a touchy. I read an article in the newspaper on Sunday that really pissed me off. Okay? Really. But I'm going to start with Brother AVQ because Brother AVQ is always, what should I say? Brother AVQ is always on cue when he gets started here. So let's go ahead and talk to Brother AVQ. All right. Kentucky Tornadoes governor confirms at least 67 dead, sadly, as toll expected to rise. Kentucky Governor Andy Bashir says over one over 100 Kentuckians still unaccounted for and that the number of confirmed deaths might not be known for weeks. I've seen the drone video footage of the aftermath. Their town of Mayfield is just perdido, gone, terminado. Michael Rudman says, Sunrise Movement says, call tornado devastation what it is, a climate disaster. This climate disaster is about our electeds failing us, choosing the water down and delay climate bills instead of investigating infrastructure that will keep people safe, said Varnishin Pakash, Sunrise Executive Director. And this suffering is at the expense of working families who have to make the possible decision of working to feed their families or fleeing to save their lives or politicians must fight for us. Added, Kentucky needs direct cash payments and FEMA assistance quickly and to any other who needs Build Back Better must pass. It is a bare minimum. Michael Rodden says Ron Paul is being dragged for requesting federal aid for his tornado rabbit state after routinely voting against past disaster relief bills. I have to wonder if this is real change of heart about the role of government following a disaster or just a self-serving duplicity. We know the answer is a self-serving duplicity. I don't want to hold Rand Paul's previous action against him when he's doing the right thing. No, I want to do. That is a problem. We do need to hold his actions against him. In fact, we need to go on the attack on Paul. Remember, we're not attacking our brothers and sisters that are Republicans. We love them like everybody else. We are attacking their leaders who have led them astray. Okay? So it is important for us to attack Paul and says, why should we give a tell his people? That the, the reason they're going to get aid is not because of their of Paul, uh, Rand Paul. Let his people know that Rand Paul, had it been for Rand Paul, they would have absolutely no recompense. It is important that we use the now, the reality, how things are now to do that. Yes, folks, please hit the like button or the thumbs up button or whatever button you can to make sure that we get some some performance here also hit the join button all right next one this is mansion against us poor people campaign targets corporate democrats at dc rally poor and low-income people are saying that we can no longer wait for the voting rights living wages health care immigration reforms and so much more we're gathered here today to declare our independence from corporate lobbyists the money grabbers and others who control the narrative about what's possible here in the united states reverend dr william j barber to co-chair of the poor people's campaign told ralliers in a fairy speech they want to separate us. They want to fight for voting rights over here and fight for living wages over there. That's the Washington, D.C. two-step. We know that game you're playing and you ain't dividing us anymore. Isn't that what we preach here? 
They use race as that dividing factor. They use class as that dividing factor. They use gender as that dividing factor. If we don't stop it and realize we're all humans, right? They can continue to use those performative, or rather, those attributes that mean absolutely nothing. Like I said several times, race doesn't mean a damn thing. Because there ain't no race, really. And I gave you guys the explanation for all of that so many different times. So today I'm going to talk a little bit about that as well. Anyhow, Tornado Alley shifts east, bringing more tornadoes to the Carolinas. I found a remarkable Fox article. A study of the Northern Illinois University shows a decrease in tornadoes in the plains and increase in the Carolinas. The core of tornadoes is shifting east into the mid, mid, south, and southeast. Climate change is making droughts in the southwest worse, expanding the air and expanding deserts to the east. As the traditional tornado alley loses moisture, the key ingredient for tornadoes, areas east are seeing a muggy surge. Check out, I'm in D.C. right now, and it's, it's occurring in D.C. The change in weather, not really the kind of winters they're used to, right? Maywood says, good afternoon. Buenas tardes, Maywood. Michael Rudden has one more here. Michael, you're, 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 you're itching, you're itching, Michael. New York. Mass mandate now in effect amid worst COVID surge in nine months. Sadly, there is about 20% of the population who are strictly authoritarian. They won't do a right unless specifically told to do so by those above them. That's who the mass mandates are for, and I'll continue that after. Anyway, AVQ, welcome aboard. Mega Ticarli, don't know who you are, but welcome aboard. I don't speak that language. It seems like French to me. BD Poller, Bruce Poller says, I bet it's going to be a great show. Hey, Bruce, I meant to call you yesterday to check up on you. I trust that you're doing well because you're here and you have a smile on your face. AVQ Bitin Carlo, translation, have a nice week to you all and a nice birthday to all and a happy new year 2022. Well, thank you for the translation on Google AVQ and El Señor Megaticarl. Thank you so kindly. AVQ says, that's about right. Paul Fleming says, welcome in from ATL. The one and only Yvette Avery Herod is with us today. Says, attention, afternoon, PDR Posse. And let's see what else we got here. Norman Reynolds is in the house. Paul Fleming is in the house. Emily Palmer. Welcome aboard, my dear friend. In Paul Fleming says, Biden needs to go to the states where he has a position in our party. Take the opposers with him so the people in their states can see they have who they have elected. May Wood says, replying to Michael Rudnan, Michael Rudnan, when the BLM protests were going on, everyone, everyone was wearing masks and mostly keeping their distance, so not a lot of spread. That is very true. Then the right wing started protesting the mass and shut down no mass, no vaccine, no social distancing, and suddenly we have major spikes all over. Monday, you know how it is. I know how it is, Michael, but you know, Love you, brother. You keep giving us good material. You keep bringing us good stuff. We still love it. Now, I want Peggy Lopez says, Hi, all the weather troughs widening have a benefit of my being able to grip fresh tomatoes out of my garden. And if the weather doesn't change, I have fresh strawberries in a couple of weeks. Peggy, I may have to tell you to send me some of those darn strawberries because if you grew them, I imagine that they're like the best, right? But anyhow, let me get to the Houston Chronicle article. I hope it doesn't corrupt my screen too much. Uh, but I want to, I want to get to the Houston Chronicle article that that I told you guys about. Then we're gonna have my friend from Woke, who's gonna talk about race and politics. 
But what I want to do before I get there, folks, is I want to kind of... He, he is... If, if you listen to the interview, you'll see that he's fairly upset. And a lot of people would look at him and say, why is he upset? Why are POC so upset? Why are black people so upset? Why are Latinos so upset? I'll tell you why. There's an article that came out yesterday. And, you know... Um, I read the article, and let me make sure that I'm not corrupting too much my speed here. I want to get to the article on the screen, uh, get to the article before I put it on the screen. Obscure law. Uh, bear with me as I pull that up for you guys. Because, you know, the racism is a... First of all, people wonder why is it, you know, I've had people all over the place... They've called me the N-word, you know, doing this kind of work. N-word, all kinds of things that I don't let it bother me. In fact, I try to befriend them. I try to see where their heads are, where they're coming from. I try to be the person that's going to look beyond. Because I understand most of this stuff is generated by ignorance and so forth. So anyhow, I read this article yesterday, and I'm putting it on screen right now. It's a Houston Chronicle article. The title was, same Texas religious leader or some Texas religious leaders live in lavish tax-free estates thanks to obscure laws. So we know who the, the rich churches are mostly. And again, I don't want to be racial here, but in this case, I must. Most of these big mega rich churches, yeah, there are a lot of black and Latino mega churches as well. But most of these mega churches, you know who the culprits are, and they take all these great tax advantages and here in Texas, the Houston Chronicle decided that it was going to do a story. And not only a story, a series on the issue. So I was excited. I'm not one of those church-going people who lavish themselves or praises the church. I know the church has a lot of evil in it, right? So anyhow, I'm reading the article, and the guy did a great job. He went to the tax assessor collectors. He figured out what homes were not paying taxes, which preachers lived in mansions and all these great things and it's like wow that is great he's doing the right thing and he's not naming preachers per se but he's naming organizations etc 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 right and then it happened right when it is time to give a representative example of a church pastor Taking, taking advantage of the tax system. In other words, what is commonly known to what everybody wants people to believe is, you know, living on the dole. Who is the first by name preacher on the negative side? I digress. The article first decides to praise two preachers. I want to read this, this part of the article. Remember, the article is talking a lot about these guys that pay tax, don't pay their taxes. They live in these big mansions and gated communities. These are all preachers. And in Texas, they have a parsonage law that they live by that allows the pastors not to have to pay taxes on their residences, etc. So they build mega mansions with your mega dollars and your mega tax breaks. So here's how it goes now. I want to read this passage. Because this passage says it all. It doesn't look racist. It doesn't look like they're like picking stuff. But when you look at it in the aggregate, the subliminal message 
that goes out is which are these preach which preachers are on the dole and it carries out the stereotype and i want you guys to tell me if you don't see it look at this everybody know who olstein is olstein is olstein is that mega preacher in texas has this prosperity gospel makes a lot of money he's the guy who didn't open the door when the hurricane hit until he was embarrassed into opening the door by the way i do like his messages when he starts talking a lot about uh, prosperity stuff he has some good 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 messages but again preacher Osteen. he has some big problems and the other one is hagee from san antonio hagee we all know is a i don't want to call him a racist but you know hagee's a guy who's hate homosexuals who hate everybody else and has a lot of other problems but that's who this article decided to highlight as the ones that are good in paying tax i want to read the article now i just needed to give some context there it says the following well-off religious organizations that clearly have the means to afford their taxes don't have to seek the exemption lakewood church did not ask the harris county appraiser for a tax break on the 15,000 square foot residents of the state's most famous prosperity gospel preacher, Joel Olstein. His annual tax bill comes to $218,000 a year, according to the county. Olstein, who hasn't taken a salary since 2004, believes it's important for donors to know all their money goes to the church, said the brother-in-law, Don Olaf. He could take the parsonage break, Olaf said, but he pays his property taxes, just like he's supposed to do. Property records also show that San Antonio Cornerstone Church didn't seek an exemption for any clergy residences in Beer County. Appraisals records show its well-known spiritual leader, John Hagee, pays $42,000 annually in property taxes. A spokesman said the matter was personal and declined to comment. But he pays his taxes. So here... These two controversial white pastors, they pay their, you know, they pay their taxes on their, you know, their mortgages, not their mortgages, their, their property taxes. But let's continue. But Harris County Appraisal District documents show New Light Church World Outreach and Worship Centers pay no taxes on its 25,000 square foot mansion in spring perched on the shore of a private lake and occupied by its high-profile leader, I.V. Hilliard. The 11.8 lot includes three hot tubs, two fountains, and a swimming pool. Okay. Okay. And uh, who else? Uh, who else did they pick on? Let me see. Let me think for a second. Let me think for a second. Who else? Hilliard's wife told the appraisal officials... It was their home district documents because Bishops Hilliard and his wife were living there. We are treating the 24,500 square foot home as a parsonage, said Jack Barnett, a spokesperson. New Lights attorney Malachi Johnson said Apostle Hilliard occupies only a portion of the home and that the primary use of the property, which in addition to the mansion includes six other homes, was a minister retreat and conference center. And so, again, two controversial white preachers, they lift up as being good tax-paying preachers, okay? And I, 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 I need to find the other person because there is a, the other, uh, the other person that they decide to pick on, 
was a Latino. I think it's a, it's a guy who uses martial arts. His name is, uh, como se llama? Let me bear, bear, bear with me a second. I, Ivan Ujueta. Devoted to use mastering. He didn't pay his property taxes. So the two that they highlighted for paying their property taxes, two controversial white preachers, but when they are wanting to show preachers living extravagantly without paying their taxes, they chose Hilliard and Ulueta. I wonder, and I don't have the answer for this, I didn't have enough time to research this one. Did they check on the Second Baptist Church, which has several mega churches in the area and whose pastor hates paying taxes, is a great supporter of the Republican Party and is trying to eliminate taxes altogether? Did they consider checking on that? I doubt it. I doubt it. But that is what I'm talking about. It's always, whenever they're making these cases, in as much as POCs are not the protagonist of all the deceit, are not the protagonist of the ones spending the money or causing the most pain, somehow they are going to be the ones that are highlighted. The same thing occurred when we talk about things like the vaccine. Vaccine, or rather, uh, uh, the, the coronavirus. It's in, uh, uh, I said Switzerland, Norway, one of the, the northeastern countries, Western, I mean the Western European countries, and in South Africa. They stopped traffic from all of Southern Africa, not just South Africa, but all these other countries that have the, uh, a Coron, the Mycoran uh, strain. Not a problem. You can still come to the United States. It's always easier to hit the POCs, right? And then who can forget this picture here? Check it out on the screen, folks. That is the Ugandan activist who was out there with the Norwegian activists and, and, and four others. When the AP reported that there were these youths out there to defend the climate, the top picture is what everybody saw. Unbeknownst to them, cropped out was that Ugandan girl who works very hard in the climate movement, just like Trondin does. Think about that. So one of the titles of the, of the, the piece today was Our Media Creates Racists. And I really mean that. A lot of people are infer much from what they hear on the media. And when the media does things like this, I mean, it, it seems subtle. It doesn't seem like it's something that is really there. But it is there. It is the subliminal messages that are sent. Climate change, fighters for fight climate change. We are going to make climate better. We have the youth fighting. And they don't know. A lot of African youths are in there too, including this Ugandan girl, Nakete. I think it's Nakete is her name. But we don't hear about them. And when they're in, in Switzerland or Davos or wherever they were, taking pictures together, when it was time for the eight, Vanessa Nakrate, thank you very much, Nakate, thank you very much, Rodney. When it was time for the picture to go out for the world to see, they cropped her out. What did the reporter at the Houston Chronicle do? They cropped them out. They cropped two religious guys 
who have a problem and lift them up as being the supporters and defenders of paying their taxes. And when it was time to show two, uh, who, two who didn't pay their taxes, they showed a Latino and they showed an African-American. Now, they don't come out and they don't have to say anything. What's in your mind is, is that message that has been promoted to you over and over and over again. POCs on the dole. Others upstanding, taking care of business. It's not quite evident. You don't see it. They don't have to come out and tell it to you. It's the same thing that they did when uh, the, the former leader of the Republican Party said, we don't use the N-words anymore. We just use phrases that codify who these people are. That's all we do now. Maywood says, unfortunately, that's only too true, Egberto. It may not be intentional, but the net effect is the same. Um, let me tell you right here and there for the, these reporters at the Chronicle, uh, it was intentional. And let me tell you what I mean by intentional. They needed to put, they wanted their article to have faces to preachers that people could recognize as doing wrong. And in order to do that, they decided to show a Latino and a black in as much as all the wealthy preachers in Harris County, the vast majority, don't look like Ulueta or Hillian. It's just that simple. Uh, anyhow, now it's time for our special guest. And he, he does not take a conciliatory tone as I do in trying to educate, in trying to teach, in trying to inform, in trying to enlighten, in trying to un let folks understand that it's a plutocracy that's putting that cancer in the brains of many to do what we do for them to maintain power by keeping us at each other's throats. He's beyond that now. He just wants to, well... You'll hear what my brother has to say here. Let's go ahead and talk to Hal H. Harris because I think you're going to... Some of you may find him difficult to like and those of you who understand our system will love him. Welcome to one more edition of Politics and Right. I'm Egberto Willis, your host. Hal H. Harris is a writer, but he's not just any writer. When Medium announced its writer's challenge, he read about it, the cash prices, an esteemed panel of judges. He quickly committed to winning the damn thing. And you know what? He won the damn thing. Senor Hal Harris, how are you doing today, my friend? I'm doing all right, sir. Living the dream on this Sunday. And thank you so much for having me on your show. Well, look, let me tell you, any medium, medium is a huge place. And for you to, to, for you to make yourself write that well, that you became the winner of this award. I think it speaks well about your writing. Tell me a little bit about yourself. So my name is Halle H. Harris. I'm the founder of Establishing 1865, where we explore Black personhood. If there was a quote that describes my writing, it will be one that I wrote in regards to exploring the career of Sade. How do Black people live and love in the West? A civilization that did not have our living loving in mind when white people created it through the triangle trade and slavery. So with that approach, I write established in 1865 with a disciplined and cultivated disinterest in the inner lives of white people, and also as a way to create and be a custodian for Black folklore and Black political thought. Now, you are a member of a, a, a recently created group called Writers and Editors of Color, and 
I became a member of the group because I, I tell you what, I met a whole lot of inspirational people, uh, people that I have learned from in just listening to their stories. And in, in doing so, I realized that there is an unexploited for, I mean, there's an unexploited big bastion of writers that many times are ignored. And in your case, you kind of got yourself above the crop in winning this award, but there are so many good writers out there that simply go uh, unnoticed. And, and I said, when I joined that group, I wanted to do my very infinitesimal point to make a difference with, uh, with, that, with that group of folk, because uh, like I said, it's been inspirational. Well, one, Roberto, your contributions to the cohort have not been small. It's actually been very large and really just our writings out to the world. Because again, a lot of woke is from the leadership of Allison Gaines, who you interviewed earlier. And she literally was just DMing writers of color and medium at random. Like, hey, I want you to be part of this community. Hey, I want to do this together. And just as part of the cohort, a community of Black writers rooted in Black liberation, but coming from different perspectives, former financiers, graduate students, me, a leader, uh, a trainer of school leaders by day, when I put on my superhero cape, a writer of Black personhood at night. You are doing such an important part of number one, getting a work out there into the world, and number two, really promoting that mindset that we do need to own our work, so that way we don't have to compromise on our political vision when we write. Well, you know what? I'm, I'm going to tell you, listening to a young person like, like you, um, uh, in, in, inside of woke, that it, it just metastasized in the mind how our new generation is out there uh, taking command, getting away from a society, a, a sort of a capitalist society that monopolizes just on your intellect and not give anything back. So look, thank you for being here. Now, you, I, I wanted to ask you a whole lot of questions, right? You won $10,000 in this particular, uh, in, in the Medium Award. And, I, and jokingly, I asked you, hey, what did you do with the $10,000? Please tell our audience your answer. I put that money towards my son's daycare. Daycare is about $1,000 a month. And therefore, that provided us a way just to really subsidize that to make sure that he's getting the socialization education that he needs, which is why I'm also excited about the daycare subsidies that's inherent in the Build Back Better bill for Joe Biden, that that's going to significantly bring down the cost of daycare and allow more American families to keep more money in their pocket and therefore provide a sense of stimulus to the average American family. Now, interestingly, Hal, um, you won $10,000. You were able to do that. So you got your, to put it bluntly, you got that, that necessary assistance that, that to, to help out. I mean, daycare is very expensive in this country. Many other countries have subsidies, or in fact, it's a, part of their, it's a part of their social safety net to ensure that children are, are well taken care of. We as a country always preach that we believe in, uh, we believe in life. We believe in taking care of our own, yet we never have these policies that support that. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your writings on these issues? So the main reason why we do not have a daycare policy is because whiteness does not believe in distributing its wealth to black people. Anti-blackness is the foundation of this nation and blackness, what a lot of people think is not the response to whiteness. Whiteness is the response to the blackness that has always been here on the American continent and has always been to what white people consider the antithesis of the American experiment. We are not, we are the necessary completion 
of the American experiment. So Heather McGee, who wrote The Some of Us, wrote a lot about this, that in any sort of policy in which will benefit the entire nation, white people politically and historically have refused to do it because they believe it will benefit black people who they do not see as, who, do, who they do not see as deserving. A lot of my writing is number one, ignoring the inner lives of white people as they make their decisions. I'm not interested in the emotional contortions or the self-rationalizations they make for their behavior. I'm only interested in what they do and how what they do impacts black personhood. And then talking about black personhood, how we live and love in the West and how we construct lives of joy of meaning and our folklore within that crucible. Now, I, I think there's something, I, I want you to touch on Heather McGee because Heather McGee wrote a very important book that became, I, I believe it was a bestseller because she actually showed the irrationality of, uh, of many in the majority population, the white population hurting themselves because they think supporting policies that support us all because it supports people that look like you and me uh, they would rather go without than to see any benefits to, to, to put it bluntly, some of the folks who actually built the country. Mm -hmm. I would not say, Eduardo, that it's irrational, that white people have actually very rational reasons for denying themselves a part of the pie that would help everyone by helping black personhood. It is because, again, whiteness is the response to blackness. And as Frank Walderson wrote in Afro-Pessimism, that black suffering is the tonic that helps to maintain white mental health. They have to see us going without, so that way they feel secure in their place in the American hierarchy. So it's a price that they are willing to pay. And that is also deeply rooted in a lot of how slavery evolved in the South in the antebellum period, that as long as we have slavery here, at least the poorest white person can never be a slave and they can claim that sort of liberty to experience kinship and community, even with plantation owners. It is rooted in power. And what is especially devious about how America was founded was that power was encoded not in class, but in this made up thing called race, which does not exist biologically or genetically. So again, white people is not irrational, they're not behaving irrationally. When they refuse to share the wealth of the nation with black people, they're doing it for very rational reasons to protect both their power and their psychological health. Now, uh, let, me, let me do a little challenge in here because I, we talk a lot about this on, on Politics Done Right. And what you've articulated, first of all, uh, is, is we, we've expressed it a little bit differently and I want you to help me out here. Um, th there's this phrase that people use, I will tolerate anything because at least I am not black. That's one, one way some people look at things. Another thing is what the uh, former Johnson had to say, uh, and I think you know that that phrase about I, I, I can I can take a dollar away from anyone as long as I'm doing something. To, uh, do you remember that phrase at all from Johnson? I do not. OK, what Johnson and I don't. <laughs> the reason I asked is that I actually forgot the exact phrase. But what he said is that uh, he could pretty much get a white person to do anything. He could steal a dollar or anything from them by just putting them in the black context, if you will. In other words, to say, well, at least you're not black. The president, Johnson, said that. And, and in effect, that sort of, a, that sort of correlates with what, what you're saying, still being in existence with a large portion of that population today. After all, 70-something thousand voted for Donald Trump, for Donald Trump right? Explain, explain that. Yes, exactly. I mean, there's really not so much to explain. President Johnson, being from the South, being a Southern senator, 
he understood his constituency better than everyone else. And he was willing, honestly, just to use that knowledge of his constituency to rise to power. And when he supported the passage of the Civil Rights Act, he also knew what Democrats would be giving up for a generation that, oh, the moment I sign this, all those Southern white Democrats are going to be Republicans. And he made that choice to do so anyway, due to pressure from the civil rights movement. Again, it's like, we have to understand that the way the, the work of politics in this nation is not to black personhood, Democrat versus Republican, it's white people, white supremacy versus black personhood. And that white supremacy, while it has its permanent home in the Republican party, you do tend to see it in a lot of leftist politics and the Democrats as well. You do see it in the race blindness of Bernie Sanders. You do see this in a lot of Rose Twitter who emphasize a class versus race proposition and in a way also choose to silence the voices of black personhood that would uplift the entire party. You have that conversation right now, for example, of the Secretary of State, Pete, I don't know what his last name is, replacing Pete Kamala Buttigieg. Harris on, Pete Buttigieg, replacing Kamala Harris on the Democratic presidential ticket or vice presidential ticket in 2024, despite Black people being instrumental to Joe Biden defeating Bernie Sanders in the Democratic primary. We are seen as the bargaining chip of the Democrats and the Republicans. They would rather just see us silence or they'll just honestly see us dead based off their current behavior and statements. So it's this constant climate of animus that political active Black people have to navigate. And Zelina Maxwell talks a lot about that in her book, The End of White Politics, how we are that bargaining chip and how it damages democratic politics. Well, I mean, uh, let, let, me, let me give you a, a caveat here because I just wrote about this a few weeks ago. And that is, I said, uh, watch the similarity between the Affordable Care Act and the bill back better. In other words, it was never Republicans who actually stopped the actuation of these particular policies. We always had the stooge from the plutocracy to come in and do it. Now, you, you added a, the racial component to it. Now, I, you said something very important, and I, and I think people need to understand that because I am, uh, I, a, lot of, a lot of people would hear what you say and, and consider you a black radical. And by the way, let me be clear here. I don't consider you a black radical. I consider you someone that is plain spoken and not only plain spoken, but don't bite the words. I mean, I, I, say, a lot of, I say a lot of things differently, but you don't bite your words, but that, remove, that does not remove the truity from what, what you're saying. And here, here is a, an important issue. When it comes to... Uh, the way we take a look at Joe Manchin, we take a look at cinema. We know their population. They're, they're not from a, a state or represent a group of people that are mostly minorities, uh, but still they are the ones that are willing to object to policies that would better the people in their states. My question to you then is the following. Is that, in this case, is that anti-Black or is that pro-protecting the plutocracy? It is definitely anti-Black because any protection of the American plutocracy is going to be anti-Black because of the nature of capital. We were brought to this nation to be the raw materials of capital. Our skins, our scarred backs, Egberto. They were used to finance mortgages. They were used to harvest sugar, used to harvest tobacco, used to harvest rice, used to harvest cotton. 
And that position has really not changed where white supremacy draws its power and its money from black personhood. Now with Manchin, he is definitely anti-black and that's, I actually wrote about that in one of my newsletters, Black on Both Sides. He lives in an idiosyncratic Southern state. It's the only Southern state without a significant black population due to both the history of the civil war in which West Virginia, very mountainous, not really made for plantations, right? Separated from Virginia to remain a slaveholding state in the union and then over time as well, right? The black population of the state has severely been reduced. So you like to hear a lot about coals and stuff like that. But again, black people are the defenders of democracy. We have not been a majority or a significant minority in that Southern state. And that does reflect Joe Manchin's politics, in which case he feels comfortable as a Democrat saying racially coded things like means testing for stimulus funds and such like that. So to me, there is anti-blackness and whatever whiteness does, because whiteness is the response to blackness, and you cannot consider white behavior and white culture and white politics without considering how it's completely arrayed against black personhood. Now, let me ask you a question. How do we work toward solving this issue as one country? So I guess to me, it was like, I have two answers for that. One, I do consider myself an Afro-pessimist. So to me, I'm not sure if this is going to be something that we can really permanently resolve, that there's never going to be a day unless we magically get reparations where we can say we have solved the race problem of America. The race problem of America here since 2019, and it will probably be here to America no longer exists. So it's something that we do have to manage. I think to me, people always ask, like, what does allyship look like? And my argument is that we should not be looking for allyship. We should be looking for Black leadership to solve the nation's problems. Because when Black people, when we do get the solutions that we want, it uplifts everyone. The Civil Rights Act was not just simply for Black people. It also promoted more equality for women, for our Latinx population, for our Indigenous population. And that many of the freedom struggles that we have here in this nation is configured on the Black freedom struggles. Furthermore, and again, this goes back to what Charles Blow made, and he made this point in his latest book, um, The Devil You Know, A Black Power Manifesto. There has to be a way to achieve Black power and sever it from white allyship. White allyship will always hold Black progress to white redemption. We will do this if we feel good. We will do this if it frees us from the shackles of race. Black people should not consider the inner lives of white people when advocating and agitating for what it means. So Charles Blow offered a novel solution that every Black person, no matter where they come from, African-American immigrants or descendant of immigrants should move down South, form a majority of the population in the South. <laughs> I, I saw that, yes. yes. And therefore, we would have sent enough representatives and senators and control enough governors, mansions, and state houses to force conversation on our agenda, which will be equitable school funding, which would be rebuilding Black infrastructure, which will be reparations. To me, those are solutions that I like because again, it foregoes the story of white redemption, which is not a story black person is interested in. We just want to get free. And to me, that provides the most expedient way of doing that. And they sense a reverse, a reverse, um, a reverse great migration. You know, you are one of the most plain spoken uh, persons that I've, I think I've interviewed on this type of issue altogether. In other words, uh, I remember in, in some of the discussions, you said one of the things that you don't allow is for, for, for the statements that you want to say to be edited out. And what I told you and I told everybody else is on politics done right, everybody's point of view is heard. And that is on, not only is everybody's point of view is heard, 
but I, I want every point of view to be listened to. Um, I have a very large white audience. Uh, what would you tell this particular audience of mine as far as how to, uh, you don't believe in allies. Exactly what do you believe in and what position should they take? I believe in black power and I believe that black power should be the leadership of the democratic politics. Because again, our track record shows and when black people do achieve their specific policy aims, it benefits all Americans. And what I would again say to your white allies is like, I don't spend a lot of time thinking about what they think about me unless they're gonna like cash at me some money in which case it's like, <laughs> I'm, I'm, not, I'm, not gonna, I'm not gonna change my view, but I would prefer $100 over $50. You know, it's like, I, I got a seven day care, a thousand a month. That's a lot of money to burn. So, but what I would say though, is that when people ask what justice and reparations and equity looks like, have we had an all black Senate? Have we had an all black House of Representatives? Have we had a black president? Have we had all three at the same time? No, then we've got some work to do in regards to writing the scales of history towards justice because we've had all white federal governments and all white state governments for centuries and centuries of American history. And when I focus black personhood, there is enough political diversity within black personhood that is also concerned for our liberation that we can have those robust debates. Think of woke. We have black socialists in woke. We have black Marxists in woke. We have black capitalists in woke. I don't know where cryptocurrency falls in any of that. <laughs> I don't, I don't know understand either. crypto. Yeah, but we have black cryptocurrency fanatics in woke. And you see us come together because we all believe in black freedom. The black capitalists will make an argument, hey, we need to invest in stocks and blah, 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 and reinvest in communities. We will be free that way. You have the Marxists. We need to overthrow the, the, the bourgeoisie and the loop and proletariat rise. But that's how we get free. You have black socialists. We need to make sure we have a more distributive. We'll get free. And you have the people like black cryptocurrencies. We need to invest in Bitcoin. We'll get free. I don't know how. But at the same time, we all come together with that common goal. And ultimately, the solutions that we're going to generate, they're going to benefit everyone. And if a white ally has a hard problem following black leadership or feeling they need to speak for black leadership, that's them evincing their anti-blackness. And it's like, I ain't got nothing to say to you. Okay, let me, let me, let me now do a, a challenge as far as pragmatism and the ability to get things done. Um, uh, how do you think power would be attained? I mean, uh, Kurt, I mean uh, Blow said, Blow talked about Black people moving to the South and becoming a majority in the South. Um, whatever, we, whatever the, the possibilities are, uh, black people in this country make up about 13%. That is a mathematical reality of, of black people in this country, right? Um, mm -hmm. And earlier in our discussion, you said something that, uh, that, that for anybody who wants to listen to your commentary and believe that, uh, that you are a racist as opposed to you've lived through uh, the American reality, have to first an analyze the very, one of the very first statements that you made, which was race was an invented thing whiteness was an invented thing but that invented thing has caused a whole lot of harm now uh my my thing is the practical i i i believe in, in in how do we attain practical solutions pragmatic solutions and one of the things that i do in in trying to put people together etc is to ask the question 
how are we going to get it done? Um, Blow had that idea and I read the idea and I chuckled because I, the number 13% still came to mind, right? Mm -hmm. So um, what's the alternative to, uh, I, I, I'll be frank, I believe, what, what I believe is everybody should be uh, treated equitably. Everybody should have equal power. And I absolutely believe reparations are uh, in order, not only in order, but represent rep reparations are owed and we need to make, create the, balance the imbalance that we have here that was created by white supremacy. I believe all of that. Practically speaking, how is that attained? I think exactly what you're saying, that reparations needs to be the central political policy of Democrats. So I hear what you're saying about pragmatism. 13%. Right? No, keep that number in your head. 13%. I get what you're hearing then about us only being 13% of the population. But again, reparations, which is one of the big policy black of Black goals, would benefit this entire nation no matter where you fall yes, in your political beliefs. And white allies need to understand that. Like if you are a black capitalist, or if you are a white ally who believes in capitalism, reparations will be continued sustained stimulus into the black community that provides business opportunities for the entire nation. If you are a socialist, a white ally who is a socialist, reparations will provide that redistribution of wealth, which will close so many of the gaps that socialism would want to close. If you are a Marxist, reparations will return so much capital and thus resources to the Lupin proletariat that exclusively and perpetually oppressed class, right? Where that does not get to control the capital. And if you're in crypto, a lot of black people will probably buy Bitcoin with reparations. Again, <laughs> I, don't I don't understand crypto. I don't want I'm making fun of it, but it is something that, you know, as a thinker, it completely befuddles me. So again, the pragmatic solution for white allies is to nurture the black leadership and to get their other allies to do so as well. It's not our job to manage white perception of black leadership. It is the white allies job to manage white perception of black leadership and then make sure that they're following the lead of the black leaders who are doing the hard work locally at the state level and at the federal level as well. So I think to me, it was like, it's a mix. Reparations is that pragmatic radical solution, but the radicalism are the white allies actually leading in and making sacrifices for black leadership. Okay, so I mean, I, I, think, I think there's some, con some convergence there because uh, you, you brought the, the white allies right back into the fold, right? Mm -hmm. I did, I did. And again, it was like, I. I try not to spend too much time thinking about their inner lives and, and such like that. To me, it's just a question of power and influence, what we can and what we cannot do with the resources here. 13%, yeah, that might be a small numerical number in proportion to 100, but we've also been here for about 400 years. So to me, I think less about the percentage and more about the historical power that Black personhood has in the United States. Because normally if 13%, was a number that white supremacy didn't feel threatened by, they would not be working so hard to stamp out all of our accomplishments. Well, you know, I'm, I'm, we're coming close to the close, but I want to give a little, a, a quick little soliloquy here uh, to tell you a little bit about my thoughts, right? Uh, first of all, when you acknowledge that there isn't a race, agreed. When you acknowledge the, the issue about white supremacy, agreed. Um, I, I take a slightly different stance than many others, and I'm um, and it, it, it even goes beyond Bernie Sanders' stance, a whole, a whole lot of, you know, Blacks, or not a whole lot, some Black people had a, 
a particular issue with um, with Bernie Sanders. And, and, and I'm going to ask you to comment on this before the last question. But I think it's all a game, okay? I think there were a small number, well, not I think, I know there was a small number of people who created the nation. And in order to hold on to power, created the gradation of people. And in creating the gradation of people, uh, yes, was born white supremacy. Because again, remember that fact that, well, remember, you ain't black, so uh, you're okay. My contention is, and this is why I give everybody the benefit of the doubt. I give, uh, the reason I give everybody the benefit of the doubt is I first try to educate. Uh, if, if, if you grew up in, the, in a white society where you saw yourself as different than others, and just like if you grew up in a black society that, that, was meant, that made you believe you were inferior, or you grew up in a black society that, uh, you know, whatever the case is, you're codified by your environment. I grew up in, a, in Central America. I came over here with, with, I came over here with beliefs that I, I didn't, to put it bluntly, I didn't know how crazy things could be over here in America. I'll, I'll, I'll simply be blunt about that, okay? So, so my contention is, and, and again, I am not asking you to be uh, the way I am. We, we, I think we are both needed. I put it bluntly. In fact, I learn a lot from people like yourself. Um, I want to first educate everybody. When I say educate, I want to give people the benefit of the doubt. I want, and after I give them the benefit, and I don't think too many people have done that. And, and let, me, let me point out something that, and I came from something we discussed in Woke today. I asked everybody in Atlanta, those of you that are working in Atlanta, please take a look at the leaders of Atlanta. And let's take a look at who's hurting uh, the you know black folk in Atlanta. I also ask folks to do the same thing. Uh, we want reparations. How many of the CBC is out there fighting for reparations? You are, but our leaders aren't. You know. So when we talk about black leadership, the black leadership that I would like to see are young folk like you who actually know what's happening. But a lot of what we have and what we've had have failed the entire country, not just us. Because as you said, if we do well, the whole country does well. So I want your thought on that. And the last question I always ask is, what would you have liked me to ask you that I didn't? So to respond to like your first question, I think that the difference like with me educating people, I don't see myself as an educator again. Mm -hmm. My vision for my writing is that I'm a creator and a custodian of the stories of Black personhood. I want a world where Blackness will never perish from the earth. And to me, it's my job is to write the articles, to write the books, to find and mentor the writers that are writing our folklore so that when we have our stories of survival and living and living in the West, that I can pass down to my baby boy. And I was like, hey, look, look what this generation did. And let me teach you about what the previous generations did. If white people really want to contribute to that and read my stuff and educate it and be educated and you know put some coins in my pocket, I'm fine with that. But I'm also impartial to that outcome, and that's what really allows me to wake up every morning with excitement and joy, releasing myself from the burden of having to educate and thus redeem white people, and then doing the work of preserving black culture no matter where I find it in the world. So I guess to me it was like again the response to the first question was just about that. 
and again, just the second thing is just, you know, what I wish you would ask about me, um, asking more about how I won the Medium Writers Challenge, because from the day they announced it, I said I was going to win it. I won it. And there was a lot of intentionality about me just really writing that crap and hopefully trying to parlay that to a book deal. If any of your listeners have a book deal or can give me a book deal, one, <laughs> I'm mad you have, one, I'm mad you haven't gotten in touch with me yet. Two, I forgive you. Three, DM me so we can talk about getting my books out to the world. But yeah, I would love to talk more about how I won that challenge. Al H. Harris, winner of the humongous Medium Writers Challenge, $10,000. Look, it was my pleasure to have you on Politics Done Right. And look, please, please keep that passion. We need people who are unabashedly bold in the way they speak. We don't all have to speak the same. We don't have to all believe the same, but we sure as hell need to make sure that we are all heard. Thank you so kindly for being on Politics Done Right. Thank you for having us, and I'll catch you at the next welcome meeting, Alberto. Absolutely. Well, folks, I hope you enjoyed that. I, I really enjoyed talking to Hal. Hal is, a, a Hal is a powerful speaker. He's a hell of a writer, and more importantly, he knows his position. Everything that he speaks, he knows what he's talking about. You don't have to agree with him. I don't agree with everything that he says, but I tell you what, he has reasons for saying what he says. Norman says something very important. Equal power in a zero-sum game means someone loses power. Power, money, judicial, political, needs to grow for POC to challenge a status quo that is protected by the racist-based uh, uh, plutocracy. How we meet, how we create new power based on personhood is possible, but needs everyone to buy in. It will mean a death to personhood of corporations. I agree. Peggy Lopez says, great interview. Michael Rodnin said, that's just it. Norman Reynolds, politics should not be a zero-sum gain. Improving some people's lives makes the whole larger. And there is an intersectionality with what Rodnin said and what Norman said. According to what Norm, Norman, and first of all, let me tell you, uh, you guys, I like to find not the middle ground, but the correct ground. And what I don't see is, uh, what I wish you'll see is the similarity between what Rudnan just said and what Norman just said. If you are viewed, the reason why we have white supremacy in this control is because those in power those in power, uh, it's interesting because they believe or they need it to be a zero-sum gain, right? In other words, if they want to constantly have a bigger size of the pie, what Rudnan is talking about, expanding the pie, in other words, somebody stay at stasis as the other one gains, they don't want that. One at stasis as the other one gains is a problem. We're coming, we are coming up close to time, and you guys have some great comments, man. Uh, let's see what else we have. Lip Sync is working a little off in the interview. Okay, I didn't realize that. Thank you for letting me know. June Littler Maywood says, is replying to somebody. Thank you for checking up on Ashley, my dear brother, E2247. Uh, thank you so kindly uh, for all that you guys do. Uh, oh, you know, I have not... I'm going to go over by two minutes because what I want to do is give my ask right now. So stick around. Tom C. Reparations due to black Americans are also due to Native Americans. Exactly. World War II Japanese internees and Mexican Americans whose land was stolen by the U.S. government. Right. Uh, now, some of the Japanese got the reparations. I don't know about the stolen land from the Mexicanos. Thank you. Great interview with Hall. Thank you very much, June Litter. Thank you so kindly. 
All right, I need to do my ask, my brothers and my sisters. I need to do my ask. Please, if you, or if you are so inclined, if you are on YouTube right now, please click that join button. We need hundreds of supporters in this new year to keep this thing going. We need hundreds of supporters. Um, go to that join button and click that join button. Alter Let's say, Egberto, there are lots of comments you'll have to respond to after the show. Catch you tomorrow. You're leaving before my, my commentary, though. Anyhow, let's go. Uh, YouTube, please go to politicsandright.com slash YouTube. Politicsandright.com slash YouTube. You can also support us at politicsandright.com slash Patreon. Patreon is P-A-T-R-E-O-N. P-A-T-R-E-O-N. You can support us as well at politicsandright.com slash PayPal. With PayPal, we get a good percentage compared to the others. So, but any three of them would be just fine. Likewise, folks, please consider going to politicsandright.com slash books to pick up our books. All this stuff that we discuss, I promise you, you read all three of those books, get any one. They're all standalone. But if you get all three, you read those books, I, you, you, you're ready to be a political activist to go out there and make change. Uh, get our hoodies or stuff or, or cameras or, not cameras, hoodies, uh, face masks, all that good stuff. Go to politicsandright.com slash store, politicsandright.com slash stores. If you want to catch all place so you can know all the different places you can go to get our stuff, how to help Politics and Right move forward, go to politicsandright.com slash support, politicsandright.com slash support. We cannot do this without you. I had some other graphics to show you with people who really enjoyed the show that we did on KPFT over the last couple of days. I don't have it. I don't have the time to put it on right now, but you guys know I love you. You guys know that we are in business, getting, getting stuff done. We're making that change. Um, I want you all to do me one important favor. Uh, you know, this is going to be what I call a, um, what, what do you call that thing when a, a shameless, a shameless plug is what you call it. A shameless plug. I am going to do a shameless plug for my daughter right now. So I hope some of you guys will take me up on the shameless plug. I need you guys to join Medium. It's free. Join Medium and go to ashley-willies.medium.com. ashley-willies.medium.com. And please, if you will, please, I have it in the link as well. The podcast folks don't necessarily see the links, but those of you who are listening live will. Please go to ashley-willies.medium.com. Ashley-willies, W-I-L-L-I-E-S, .medium.com. Follow her. She needs to get 100 followers soon. Go ahead and do that for your hermano here. Not many of you, um, I don't know if you got many of you are in, are on uh, Medium or not. Please consider joining. Very good platform. Anyway, my name is Egberto Willies. This is Politics Done Right. And all of you know how I end my baby. I am what? We spend a lot of time deconstructing the news, trying to, trying to parse it into a form that everybody can understand. We try to find those little nitpicks where uh, it goes, it flies above the fray, etc. If you really like these videos that we do, I want to ask a big favor. Please go ahead, number one, subscribe to our channel, and number two, please join if you can. Thank you so kindly for watching. Keep watching. Please remember to share. We must populate the entire internet with our progressive message, a message that we know is what most Americans say that they want. So help us please join.